You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives us a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Father, we live in a day when Sunday, your day, has been profaned. Most of our own nation is ignoring it, and even many of your people, if it was not convenient to come, you know they didn't come. You told us that friendship with the world is comparable to spiritual adultery. You've called us to be distinctly different. May we be broken over the sin of our age and the sin in our own hearts. Thank you that when we confess our sin, you are both faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we know if you seem distant to us today that you have not changed, for you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son that your son gave us, you wait with open arms. It's we who have moved, but thank you for your promise that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. Your word warns us that you give grace to the humble, but you resist the proud. So we come bankrupt, confessing to you we have no righteousness in ourselves. that any good thing has come from you, the Father of lights from above. May we be a people who are characterized with a sense of gratitude and not grumbling, for we know you hate grumbling. May we open ourselves to you today that you might speak to us afresh. We pray for the commandment that you've given us to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, that that would be a reality in this new week. We know that the greatest commandment overflows into the great commission that you've given us to go into all the world and to make believers. Thank you that you're at work in the hearts of people, even in our own community, that you are preparing people. But I confess, Father, the harvest is so great, but the laborers are so few. So I beseech you, the Lord of the harvest, even from our own midst, to raise up people who will be faithful to proclaim the good news, to reach out to lost people. Father, help us to forget our success in the past. Help us even to forget our failure in the past and to press on to what is before us in this new week, that we might trust you that as we go, we might make disciples. Thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. 
Thank you. You brought us forth into a second birth through the instrument of your word, and you use it to grow us and to change us and to reshape us in Christ. So we humble ourselves before you. We don't come with a sense of arrogance like we know it all, for we do not. We come as teachable children. We ask that you would speak to each of us, myself included, that you would take your word and reform the way we think. For you said, as a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes. May we pay close attention. May we not be distracted. May we be eager to hear from heaven that we would be more than those who just hear, but those who are willing to obey. So help me, fill me, anoint me, and use me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take God's Word this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. I hope you bring a Bible to church. I promise if you have a paper edition of the Bible, you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach, and you'll be able to begin to learn your way around the Bible, unlike with the electronics. I'm not against electronic Bibles. I was one of the first testers of an electronic Bible before a lot of you were born in the 1980s. But lay that aside... We need a paper copy of the Bible. That's going to help you to find your way around God's Word. So use a Bible. Bring one. Don't, don't use your neighbor. Don't depend on your neighbor. You don't eat off your neighbor's plate at home, and you shouldn't depend on him here. And uh, mark it up. We don't, we don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the printed page. We worship the God who gave us the Holy Scripture. And if you don't have a Bible, come to one of our Meet the Pastor meetings, and you'll be provided with one. Now, if you're joining us for the first time... You'll be interested to know we've been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is really the conclusion to the Bible. If you remember, the word revelation is the Greek word apokalupsis, and it means to reveal or to uncover. And so in some of your English Bibles, the title at the beginning of this book is rightly called The Apocalypse. And it being, of course, the final book of the Bible, it describes for us the final consummation of all things. But I find it rather ironic that the book in the Bible that means to reveal or to open or to uncover is for many Christians a closed and mysterious book. And one of the reasons it's mysterious is because we don't know our Old Testament and John assumes that we have a commitment to the Old Testament scriptures or we don't really understand how Israel fits into this book. There are 404 verses in the Revelation, 300 of which have direct allusions to the Old Testament. That's about 75% of the book of Revelation. And what's interesting is John never specifically introduces an Old Testament quotation, Isaiah said or Moses write. He just assumes you know what he's referring to, and like a mosaic, he weaves it all together so beautifully. He doesn't take the time to do that, and in one sense, I'm glad he has not. But half the problem is we don't know our Old Testament. The other half is we don't understand the role of Israel. People, one person said, three people said to me, you're talking a lot about Israel lately. Of course, I'm preaching Revelation. It's a Jewish book. He's talking about that final 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. This is all about Israel. Of course, I'm preaching about Israel. What else would I say? But I'm preaching more than just about Israel. 
because this is not what God simply has said. This is what God is saying. This is not just what applies to the future. All Scripture is given by inspiration. This is what applies for us today. And one of the reasons, too, that some people don't understand Revelation is they use a different principle in which to interpret it. They take all of the first coming prophecies literally, for that's how they were all fulfilled, all 333 of them, but somehow they apply a different road to interpret those prophecies that deal with the second coming. Now, this is a closed book to many, but God wants you to understand this book. His purpose in giving it to us is not to conceal, but to reveal. Revelation 1.3 gives a unique promise, though I suppose in a broad sense it applies to all of the Bible, but only in this book. Does God say, if you read it and you heed it, you will be blessed? Well, the fact that you can read it and heed it assumes that you can understand it. Now, some don't understand it because it's written to God's bondservants, those who've been born again. And if you haven't had a birth from above, you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you who wants to be your helper and your teacher. But with that said, neither can we be lackadaisical. We are called to study, as Proverbs says, we are to cry out for discernment. We are to lift our voice for understanding. Like hidden treasures, we are to search out the Word of God. So if you're here for the first time, you might want to go and listen to the first sermon I gave about 18 months ago on the Revelation. Go back, listen to that. It's at searchthescriptures.org or if you have the phone app, because it will give you a helpful backdrop to study the Revelation. Now, I want to begin by reading the chapter. Uh, Chapters 12 and 13, I told you last week, are two of the most important chapters in the whole book in understanding the rest of the Revelation. And the reason I say that is because we're introduced to seven personages in these two chapters who are going to become the key players in the rest of the book. So we're going through very slowly. I'm planning maybe eight, possibly nine sermons just on these two chapters. We've spent two weeks on the first 10 verses. This morning we want to begin in verse 11, but to give us a running start and a flavor I want to read the whole chapter. You can see the title of this morning's message, dealing with verses 11 to 17, is Israel's Great Escape. Revelation chapter 12, beginning now in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation 
and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, in you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war at the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, chapters 12 through 13, again, part of that parenthetical section. There's three parenthetical sections in the Revelation. And beginning in chapters 10 through 14, 15 being an introduction to the bold judgments, here in 12 and 13, we're introduced to seven key players. And among them, of course, is the dragon called Satan. There's the Antichrist called the beast. And then, of course, there is the false prophet. And so what we will discover in the rest of Revelation is an unholy trinity of sorts, Satan taking the position of God the Father, the Antichrist taking the place of God the Son, and the false prophet doing what the Holy Spirit does, who points men to Christ, but he will point men to the Antichrist. And with that said, these events that we're studying will be of special significance to the people who are alive and reading them when these things actually unfold. They are suffering saints like the church has never suffered. These tribulation saints will suffer in a unique way. But nonetheless, this is written for us as well. For anyone in any age who is suffering, the enemy they face is the enemy we face today. And even this morning, Satan is fighting against God's people who are on earth. But the Lord Jesus has overcome him. And we're going to discover this morning that Satan, the great deceiver, will often use human means to accomplish his purposes. Whether it's the beast, the Antichrist, whom we'll study largely in the next chapter, or his false prophet, he works through means of deceptions by the means of the beast, this future world dictator who will present to the world solutions to all of the pressing problems they will be facing, but also through his propaganda minister, the false prophet, and by supernatural signs and wonders that originate from evil sources, he will deceive. Now, let me bring you into the context of our passage. In the first six verses, we are introduced to two wonders or two signs. Look at verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. 
Now, the child, according to verse 5 in Revelation 19.15, and according to Psalm 2, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's Isaiah. That's Psalm 2. That's Revelation 19. And her child, the Lord Jesus, was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, if the child is Jesus, the woman can be only one personage, and that's the nation of Israel. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans 9, that Jesus is a Hebrew according to the flesh. He is a Jew. The Jewish people gave us the Messiah. And of course, we compared verse 1 with the vision that Joseph was given, that dream in Genesis 37, 9 through 10. I hope you have Genesis 37, 9 and 10 written out next to verse 1, because it's the identical imagery. And there, of course, it's a picture of the nation of Israel. The best interpreter of Scripture is the Bible itself. And so we discovered, too, how in the Old Testament, Israel is often pictured as a woman, as a woman in labor. In fact, there are four prominent women that we're going to study in the Revelation. We already saw Jezebel, the church at Thyatira, with all of her evil ways. Then, of course, today we're studying Israel, and Israel will be front and center through the rest of the book. The third woman we'll study is um, the apostate woman, so to speak. She's called the harlot, the whore of Babylon. And then the fourth woman, of course, will be the bride of the church, Christ, when we return back with him in Revelation 19. But this first wonder, this first Samion, John loves this word Samion. In fact, he uses it throughout his gospel in the place of the word miracle, because John selects seven miracles, five unique to his gospel, with the exception of the revelation, with the resurrection, seven miracles that are signs, they are miracles with a message. Why? That you might believe Jesus is the Christ, and in believing, you might find life in his name. And so here he once again describes a sign. It's not uh, purely a miracle, and so the King James, wanting to differentiate, calls it a wonder. But it's the same word. And she gave birth to a male child who is to rule the nations. And so what we find here is Israel, who gave us the Savior of the world. You hate the Jews and you hate Jesus because he's a Jew, and he came through Jewish lineage. He, they gave birth, and then he's caught up. He goes from the birth to the ascension, and then he's going to fill in the details in between. And so the woman with child in verses 1 and 2 is the first wonder. Look at the second wonder in verse 2, in verse 3. Then another sign, another wonder appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. On his head were seven diadems. Now, the great red dragon can be none other, according to verse 9, than Satan himself. And he's called the great red dragon because like the fourth horseman of the apocalypse who comes on a red horse, Satan comes with blood and murder and war because from the beginning, Jesus said he was a murderer. I won't go into all of the symbols here because when we come to Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, those will be defined for us. The seven heads will represent 
uh, seven mountains that, represent, that in turn represent seven hills, and there's a city built on seven mountains or hills. We'll see how the word har is used in Hebrew and how it's used in, in Greek of, of large hills, and we'll look at the ten horns that will represent ten kings. And so John just kind of briefly introduces the thought. He'll explain it later, so when he does, I will. But look at verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And so again, the woman pictures Israel and Satan from the beginning has wanted to destroy the Messiah. And so all the way back in Genesis, you see this conflict between Satan and the woman, even in Genesis 3.15. And the great dragon is standing there waiting to destroy the devourer. And that has been his pattern all the way through history. Uh, Pharaoh wanting to destroy the Jewish lineage. He wanted all the boys to be killed. He is called by the prophet Ezekiel a dragon, the very Pharaoh that was alive in Moses' day, because he, like the dragon, Satan, wanted to ruin the Jewish race. Likewise, at one point in the uh, line of Judah, remember, God specified that Messiah would come through one of the 12 tribes, specifically the line of Judah, and there was a certain lineage that he would have to come through, through the family of David. And at one point in their history, it got down to one little boy, Jehoshaphat. And one dear, precious woman hid that child for a number of years in the temple because Satan wanted to destroy the messianic line from which Christ would come. King Herod there in Jerusalem, five miles away in a little town called House of Bread, Bethlehem. It took the wise men approximately six months to come from the east to Jerusalem. And so wanting to assure that every possible candidate for Messiah would be killed, he had every baby to and under slaughtered in that place. And so the devil is a murderer from the beginning. And I imagine later on that he thought maybe he succeeded when he got Judas to betray Jesus there in the garden and uh, so that he might be crucified. But actually, as we will be reminded this morning, the crucifixion is a source of victory. When we come to verse 12, it says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. And so Satan, what I want you to see, has always had this deep-seated hatred for the Jewish people, from Pharaoh to Haman to Hitler to Stalin right down to the day in which we live. And so if you were here last time in verses 7 through 10, we witnessed a war in heaven between Michael and his angels. Look at verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. Now that's kind of a shock to the system because we don't typically think of a war in heaven. Now, we often think of war on earth, and so if some new war was announced that's taking place on earth, we wouldn't be shocked because that's been the history of man from the beginning. Yet when you read of a war in heaven, you're kind of taken back. Now, some people have forgotten that Satan and his fellow fallen angels have access into heaven. There's a well-intentioned but mistaken teaching in our day that no evil can enter into the presence of God, meaning Satan and his fallen angels can never go into heaven. 
No, that's not true until the very end of the age when God rids all evil out of the whole universe when he creates a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and then nothing will enter into his heaven that will defile it. But this passage reminds us, like many others, like in the book of Job, that Satan has access into the presence of God. Now, God has no fellowship with evil, but nonetheless, Satan has access, but someday he'll be removed. Let me give you a preview from Revelation chapter 21. There we read, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You know, every once in a while, someone calls me in the Bible line, and they say, Well, wait a minute, Pastor. If man fell once, couldn't he fall again in heaven? If Satan created perfect fell, couldn't we ultimately in eternity fall? No, 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 no. Now, had Adam and Eve eaten from the tree of life before they fell, they would have been sealed forever. When we come to the end of the Revelation, we're going to see the recipients in heaven, you and I included, are going to eat from the tree of life just as a reminder of our security. But this verse says it all. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning, crying, or pain. Since the wages of sin is death, and the promise is that there's no more death, and the promise is there's no more sin, and sin, of course, is what causes mourning and crying and pain. And if those things will never occur again, then sin can never occur again. But right now, Satan has access to the throne of God. Now, that access is going to be cut off at some point. Now, we discovered last time that his pre-fall name was Lucifer. And many Christians today, they hear the word Lucifer and they think it's an evil name. Actually, it's a beautiful, magnificent name that God gave him. It Translated means the shining one, and it described him in his pre-fallen state. And we saw that Satan had limited access even after his fall. Here's that chart I gave you right at the end of the sermon. We didn't have much time to discuss it, but the four stages of Satan's career. First, his fall from heaven, and so we studied Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and Luke 10, and then his fall to the earth. That's introduced to us in this chapter. It hasn't happened yet. Then his future fall into the abyss, and then his final fall into the lake of fire. Verse 4 says, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. When Satan fell from heaven, he was given limited access. He was once a permanent resident of heaven, whereas the anointed cherubim, like a musical instrument, he led the holy angels in worship of the living God. But at one point, wanting to make himself like God, Jesus can say, I was watching when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. He decided he was too wise, too wonderful, too mighty to be anything less than God. And so he sought to exalt himself above the stars of God. And we saw that the word stars is used two ways in Revelation and in the rest of the Bible. Of the literal stars, you look up in the night, 
sky, but also of angels who are called the stars of God. We use sometimes the term loosely. We say he's a movie star. He's a sports star, not a literal star, but uh, an exalted person of sorts. And of course, once he rebels against God, he still has access to heaven. Remember there, the Bnei Elohim, the sons of God with Satan come into the presence of God and says, look at your servant Job. The only reason he falls you is because you bought him. Take it all away and we'll see what he's made of. He had access to rebel against God. In fact, uh, look at verse 8, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place in heaven found for them. And the great dragon was thrown down, the servant of old, who's called the devil, who deceives the whole world. And so there's coming a time when while Satan right now has temporary access, is the prince of the power of the air, there's coming a time when he will no longer have any access at all in the heavenly realm. He'll never be able to enter into the throne room of God. He will be permanently cast out of heaven. And when he and his angels, and we learn only from the revelation, the number of angels that rebelled, one-third of all the holy angels that were created rebelled with Satan. Out of hundreds of billions of angels, one-third rebelled, but we still got two on our side, right, <laughs> for everyone. But when he falls to the earth, there's going to be double wrath on the earth. Not just the wrath of the Lamb, as Revelation 6 expresses it, but also the wrath of Satan. So Satan is on his way down. First, he fell from his lofty place as the anointed cherub. Secondly, he will be cast literally to the earth, and he will spend the last of these uh, last half of the seven years, three and a half years. There's going to be hell on earth, literally. It's going to be awful. You don't want to be here, and you don't have to be here if you know Jesus is your Savior. But when we come to Revelation 20, we'll see his third downfall, where for a thousand years he's put in the abyss. And we're going to see how important understanding that truth is to your own salvation and understanding just how fallen we are and how great God is in all of his grace. And the fourth and final fall will be into the lake of fire. At the end of the thousand years, he'll be loose for a short period of time. He'll institute one final rebellion and then forever he will be cast into the lake of fire. You know, there's a popular thought that goes around today. There's a lot of popular thoughts that are just wrong. <laughs> I hope you know that. That Satan is in hell. Satan's not in hell. Satan has never, ever, ever, ever been in hell. That's his future home in the lake of fire. And if you are following him when you die, you'll be there with him forever. You say, well, I don't follow the devil, pastor. Well, the question is, are you a part of God's kingdom through a second birth? For unless you've been born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You may not think you're following him, but if you're not a part of God's kingdom, if you've gone past the age of accountability, you're in the kingdom of darkness. And unless you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, you don't want to die that way, believe me. Now, that brings us into Israel's great escape. That's the backdrop. If you're taking notes this morning, there are several truths I want to underscore in your thinking. First, Israel's escape. Uh, I want you to see how Israel escapes Satan's condemnation. Let's think about how Israel escapes Satan's 
condemnation. Now, we left off in verse 10, and verse 10 is really a hinge verse setting us up for what will take place in verses 11 through 17. So let me read it again. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. When Satan is cast down, you know those who are in the Father's house right now, they're going to they're gonna rejoice. There's going to be a lot of thanksgiving. He is the tormentor. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the arch enemy of every true child of God, and he will be forever expelled. And right now this morning, Satan and his evil following imps are accusing God's people. But there is going to come a time, listen, as I preach, he may be accusing one of you this morning, but there's coming a time when God will say, Michael, enough is enough. No more with Satan here. And so there'll be a phonane samion. Phonane, we get our word phonograph, voice, samion, a great sign that will result in a phonane megane. We get our word mega. We think of something that's big when we think of mega. And so we translate it a loud voice. A shout is going to echo through heaven. And just like this morning at the end of the song, you guys clapped and you got excited. I promise all of heaven is going to get excited when this happens because this one will never again be able to make an accusation against us. Last sound that will be heard will be the lingering sound of our Savior making a defense before us, for us. You know, He does that. Paul says in Romans 8, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. But one day, yet future, revealed here in Revelation 12, there'll be a brief battle where Satan will be sent packing. That hissing evil servant who continually day and night accuses God's people either directly or through his servants, he is going to be cast out of heaven. Listen, he mocks God's people. Did you see so-and-so, God? Jesus, did you see that person? He claims to be one of your born-again ones. And Jesus will plead and intercede with his nail-scarred hands. Before the throne of God, I have above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. We sing it. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. God forever defends you before his throne of grace. The accuser of the brethren will literally be thrown down. And when he is thrown down, Israel is going to experience a form of persecution like they have never, ever seen. So what I want you to see this morning are three weapons that you see the tribulation saints utilized before they were martyred and brought to heaven. 
three weapons that they use that are still available to God's people today, that if you want victory over your foe, the Satan, then you need to utilize them. First, I want you to notice from verse 11, they use the blood of the lamb. They use the blood of the lamb. We're told, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. Now, when you read verse 11, a careful reader will ask, who is the they that overcame the lamb? The they are the brethren that are described in verse 10. Those tribulation saints who are martyred, literally, Revelation 20 will tell us they were martyred by having their heads cut off because they refused to follow Satan's false Christ. And so, certainly, they're included, and I suppose any other believer who had been raptured prior who utilized some of these same tools that are available to you today. Our brethren includes you and me, because why? Who's here in heaven with the tribulation saints? The church. We're caught up through an open door. We're there in the portals of heaven witnessing what God is doing as He is unfolding this war in heaven and as Satan and his angels are cast down to the earth. And so Satan accuses us day and night, and they overcame because of the blood of the Lamb. That's the power. They didn't overcome by holy water from the Jordan River. <laughs> one, of, one of our people took a bottle of, of holy, holy water. Jordan water is actually pretty muddy. And they brought it home from the Jordan. They poured it into their baptism. And look, there's nothing magical about that water any more than the water that's behind me this morning. There's nothing magical about some heavenly gem that hangs from your rearview mirror or some little statuette that you put on your dashboard. For that matter, there's nothing magical about giving some kind of incantation where you, quote-unquote, bind the evil one. The victory is not in binding Satan. The victory is through the blood of the Lamb. The victory is through and by means of the life blood of Jesus that was shed. Remember what Peter said, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You can almost hear the accuser say, just look at what that person who calls himself a Christian did. Look at all of his sins. Look at all of his failures. Look at the mess that he's made again. How do you respond to that? You say, you're right. I'm a sinner. I've made a mess of my life again. Yes, I did what I shouldn't have done. But may I remind you, evil one, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. Mr. Devil, you seem to have forgotten that my sins were all, not partly, but completely nailed to that cross. You have conveniently forgotten, but I have not forgotten that when Jesus shed his innocent, sinless blood, he shed it for me. And so he defeated you and all of your principalities through the blood of the cross. And so Paul can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so they were nullifying the accusations of Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb. For it is the blood of the Lamb that positionally renders every believer righteous in God's sight, but it is also through the blood of the Lamb that experientially allows you to find and realize that victory. 
Listen, Satan is sailing a sinking ship. Satan is ruling a falling, failing domain. And you need to claim your victory or he's going to wreak havoc in your life. Do you remember what 1 John 1, 7 said? But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another and with God. By the way, sometimes, you know, when, when I see someone who's running from me as a believer, I know there's a problem. They're hiding, not from me, they're hiding from God. It's interesting. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he doesn't say we have fellowship with God. Now he affirms that truth earlier. But he affirms we have fellowship with one another. Where's the last place a born-again, blood-bought child of God wants to be when they have harbored sin in their life? With God's people. But as we're walking in the light, that's a choice. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You believe that? You will never, ever, ever have victory unless you claim that. But you have to choose to walk in the light. That's a choice that involves obedience. In 1 John 1, 9 needs to be put in the context of 1 John 1, 7. True confession, homo legeo, lege, legeo, logos to say or a word, homo the same. When you confess, you're saying the same thing that God says about your sin. You're not making excuses for it. You're not saying, she made me do it. He made me do it. You're not coming up with some rationalization, which is nothing more than a rational lie. You're taking ownership for your sin. And when you truly, genuinely confess it, it involves a change of attitude or action such that you're choosing to walk in the light as he is in the light, and the blood of the Lord Jesus will cleanse you from every sin. But listen, you're trying to fight sin with unconfessed, unrepented sin in your heart is like trying to move the rock of Gibraltar with snowballs. It is absolutely impossible. And this morning, if you're holding on to some sin, some grudge, some lust, some point of anger in your heart, you are inviting the devil to defeat you. If you've been saved, then legally, eternally, you have forever been declared righteous in his sight, and nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. But experientially, not in terms of your justification, but your sanctification, if there's unconfessed, unrepented sin in the human heart, you are going to be defeated. We read it this morning in the pastoral prayer, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Ephesians 4 commands us not to give the devil an opportunity. And the word opportunity was a first century military term. You could render it, don't give the devil a beachhead. You give him a base of operations to wreck your life when you harbor sin in your heart. And so the first of these three reasons that these tribulation saints were victorious that we can employ today is they use the blood of Christ. But there's a second reason. They use the word of their testimony. Write it down. They use the word of their testimony. Look again at verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. 
Have you ever thought about the truth, how the word of your testimony is a mighty power to overcome Satan? Now, in the Greek New Testament, what's emphasized, what's emphatic is not their testimony, but the word, the logos. Because of the word, they had victory. You see, you might read this and think, well, it's my faithfulness, it's my personal testimony that gives me credibility before God. No, it's the logos, the word of your testimony. There is the living word, the Lord Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh. But then there is the written logos. That's what he's speaking about here. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of God, which they had borne testimony to. That's the sense of the original. Now, think your way through this. The Bible is crystal clear that the sharing or testifying of the word of Christ is what brings about conversion in the human heart. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Sometimes Christians will say, well, I live in such a way, I witness in such a way that people will look at my life and want to become a Christian. No, it doesn't work that way. People don't become a Christian by looking at your life. They have to hear the logos, the word of testimony. Your lifestyle can bring no one to faith in Christ. Now, it might give you a platform in which to share the Lord Jesus, but the power is not in your lifestyle. The power is in the word of your testimony, the word of God which is alive. And so Jesus tells a parable of a farmer who goes out and sows seed, and he describes different kinds of soil. And three out of the four soils, the seed takes no root because of different aspects of rebellion in the heart. But some of that seed, and if you sow it long enough and faithfully enough, you'll see seed hit on good hearts, and people will be saved. You know, every once in a while, you see someone come down here and say they give their life to Jesus. Sometimes I've shared with three people for that one person before they gave their life to Christ. But some of us never have ever seen anyone come to Christ. Or we seldom see someone come to Christ. You know why? Because we sow a little seed. You sow a little seed, you see a little harvest. You sow a lot of seeds, sooner or later, some of that seed's going to hit some good soil. Listen, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It is the Word of God that is alive, that has tremendous power, and I'm going to link it to our victory here in a moment, but stay with me. Think your way through this. How is it that someone is born again? Peter said, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. You see, in the physical realm, I was born of perishable seed. My father, Richard John Brogy, is dead. And his father is dead, and his father's father is dead, and I come from a long line of dead Brogies. I come from perishable seed. But there's a part of me that will experience not eternal life, but uh, not eternal death, but eternal life in a glorified body because I was born a second time through imperishable seed, of incorruptible seed. James said it this way in James 1.18. By his choice, he gave us new birth. That's the second birth. He gave us new birth by the word of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. 
the instrument the Spirit of God used to create faith in your heart that you might be forever saved was the written Word of God. So on the one hand, John 3 says we're born again by the Spirit. On the other hand, 1 Peter, James, and other passages teach we're born again by the Word of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about the new birth. Don't try to win people to Christ just by telling about how good God is to you. At some point, you need to give them the plan of salvation because the power is not in your testimony. It is in the Word of God which is alive, and that is what is going to change a person's life. No one ever will be in heaven apart from the Word of God, even in the Old Testament, before the Scripture was even recorded by Moses. People were saved through the Word of God. Now, granted, at that point, it came in many portions and in many ways, through dreams or visions. The Bible tells us Jesus taught it. We didn't know it otherwise, that the very first prophet in all the Bible is Abel. Abel preached Messiah. That's what Peter tells us in Acts 10. How did he preach the Messiah? Because it was revealed to him. He, unlike Cain, by the kind of offering he gave, preached that salvation comes through the blood of the Messiah. Don't believe this liberal theology that came out of 19th century liberal German and French theology. It's not true that the difference between Cain's sacrifice and Abel's sacrifices, one brought his best and the other brought his second best. The Scripture doesn't reveal that. What had God revealed up to this time? That man must come on the basis of blood, that Adam and Eve could not cover their sin with their own fig leaves by the work of their hands, that Sin deserves death, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so God provided skins of animals. The first death took place in the universe, and Abel used that as a testimony to proclaim the coming Messiah. Look, no one ever has ever been saved apart from the revelation of God in Christ. Now, take that past your justification into your sanctification. How were these people overcoming the devil? By the word, the logos of their testimony. What were they doing? They were preaching the Bible. They were teaching the word of God. Do you do that? Do you literally actually ever try to witness and share your faith using the Bible? I want to tell you, if you don't, it's like you are plugging up and smothering and quenching the Holy Spirit who lives in your life. Some of you came back from last year's Easter Blitz and you were so excited and you had a chance to witness and you just sensed, man, a joy. And a number of you have come up to me and said, Pastor, I know the course on witnessing is over, but I'm still doing it. And one lady said to me, there's a new excitement, there's a new vibrancy in my life as I'm sharing my faith. Why is that? Because you are giving the Spirit of God freedom to fill you, to empower you when you share your faith. And I can tell you there'll be no unction in your life, there'll be no little victory in your life unless you are faithful to do what God has called you to. Now, I know that's old-fashioned. 
for a Christian today to share his faith. But that's why America is going down the tubes, because the average Christian no longer shares the gospel, and they are quenching the power of the Spirit of God in their life. Here's three weapons these tribulation saints employed. They used the blood of the Lamb. Their second weapon was the word of their testimony. Look at their third weapon. They used their supreme love for Jesus. They used their supreme love for Jesus. Let me keep reading. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Listen, even when they were threatened with death, they didn't back down. Why? Because they loved their Redeemer more than they loved their own lives. They would sooner die for Jesus than to deny Jesus. They stood their ground. They faced the martyr's death, knowing that when life ended here, absent from the body, present with the Lord. They did not love their life even when faced with death. See that word love? It's the word agapao. We speak of agape love. We anglicize the word and we say it's God's love. Actually not holy God's love. It just refers to willful love. They love their evil deeds. Same word. It speaks of a willful choice, not just some emotional feeling. They willfully chose to love Jesus more than even their own life, like the church at Smyrna, they were faithful even unto death. We discussed the blood of the Lamb. That speaks of the principle of cleansing. That's the first tool that gave them victory. We spoke of the word of their testimony. That speaks of their public confession, sharing their faith. That gave them victory. But third, they did not love their life even when faced with death. That expresses total commitment. I mean, what can the devil do with a life like that? You lock them up in prison and they'll try to convert the people in there. You torture them and they'll rejoice that they are sharers in the sufferings of Christ. You kill them and they just go straight to heaven. Listen, you make the devil mad when you live this kind of a life. And so while the dragon... This evil one is cast down to the earth. He now is going to wreak havoc like the world has never seen. That brings me to my second point. Beyond Israel who escapes condemnation, I want you to see how they escape his persecution. And there are a couple of things that are underscored here. First, the fury of Satan's attack. Here in chapter 12, again, he's focusing on the people of Israel. This is the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. If you haven't listened to the messages on Daniel 9, that's the schematic for the whole book of Revelation. It will really help you, so I encourage you to go and listen to those messages. But what I want you to see is how he is furious towards the people of Israel. And I want you to see how Israel will escape this persecution. You say, wait a minute, pastor. What do you mean by escape? Looks to me like they're getting killed left and right. Well, that certainly is one form of escape because absent from the body, present with the Lord. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. But there's other kinds of escape. And we're going to see how God preserves some of the people who go through the tribulation. And the reason why God preserves them is critically important when we come to the end of the book. But we'll wait till we get there. But what I want you to see is what God does. Look at the last part of verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. In other words, if you're in heaven at this point, it's a great place to be. But woe to the earth! 
and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Satan knows he has only a short time. Now, the short time has already been defined for us twice in the passage as 1,260 days or three and a half years. Now, remember, he was in heaven accusing the brethren. But at this point, he is thrown down to the earth, and like a caged lion, he is furious. He wants to bring havoc and evil like the world has never, ever seen. He's been checkmated by Michael and his holy angels, and he is enraged. And so beyond his fury, think about the focus of Satan's attack that expresses that fury, the focus of Satan's attack. And when the dragon, that's the devil, verse 9 tells us that, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, we studied the woman cannot be the church because the church is born by Christ. Christ is not bear the church. But in replacement theology, where the church is the new Israel, they have to play around with these verses and come to that conclusion. But don't reverse the order. It's Jesus who gave birth to the church on the day of Pentecost. But of course, if you don't want to identify the church starting on the day of Pentecost, you say the church existed in the Old Testament, then you have no definitive time frame. But Jesus, speaking of a future time, said, I will build my church. And if you've taken my course in eschatology, on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, I give five proofs as to why the church didn't exist in the Old Testament, but began on the day of Pentecost. But neither can this woman be, as my Roman Catholics friends say, Mary. They say, well, Mary is, is, the, is the woman here. No, it, it's not Mary. And again, to come to those conclusions, you have to allegorize the Word of God. Look again at verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet with a crown of 12 stars. Again, we saw from Genesis 37, 9. I hope, again, you have that written out in the margin. That's a prophetic picture that God gives of Israel. And so verse 2, then verse 4, and now verse 13 describes the woman giving birth to Christ. Who gave us the Savior of the world? The Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child. In other words, the dragon, who is Satan, persecutes the Jewish people like he had never, ever persecuted them before. You think the Holocaust was bad. Six million Jews exterminated, by the way, all of which have been replaced. The prophet Zechariah tells us during this final period of time, two out of every three Jews on the earth are going to die. We'll study that. The focus of his attack is on the Jewish people. And I'm telling you, it's beginning to boil and it's growing, but we haven't seen anything yet. But then third, I want you to see beyond the fury of his attack and the focus, the failure of Satan's attack. Don't get lost in this forest of theology. I want you to see that during the second half of this seven years, there is a failure that the devil is going to meet. Now, remember, the trigger point 
for this whole thing. Remember, he's speaking here about 1260 days. It's going to bring us right to the second coming. 1260 days, the last half of the seven-year period. And there's a trigger point right in the middle when Satan is cast down to the earth. It's called by Jesus the abomination of desolation. He spoke of it on the Olivet, mountain of Olivet. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. So he's on this mountain called Olivet, which is like a big hill, but the Bible calls it a mountain. So if God says it's a mountain, I say it's a mountain. We, we, you know, terms or whatever you define them to be. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake. It's a big lake. There's no salt water in it. But if God wants to call it a sea, he can call it whatever he wants. He makes the definitions. I don't, all right? So here he is on the Mount of Olivet, and they're asking him about his return from heaven. And it reminds him, look, when the people who are alive during this time see this event called the abomination of desolation, we're going to study it again. The Antichrist is going into the rebuilt temple. We're in Jerusalem two weeks ago, and the young people were cheering through the streets, let us rebuild the temple. Let us rebuild the temple. That's what they were singing. That's what they were cheering in the streets. Why? Because they know that for Messiah to return, the temple must be rebuilt. God's going to do it. And in the middle of that seven-year period, this man will go in. The fact that he claims to be God is not the abomination of desolation. Now, that's significant. But what we will see, it's what's accompanied with that claim that is going to open wide the eyes of the Jews, and they're going to see that this man cannot possibly be the Messiah. Luke said it in these words, then those who are in Judea when this event takes place must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, referring to Jerusalem. And so we've been seeing the truths that Jesus speaks of perfectly aligning with the book of Revelation. So we saw through the sealed judgments a perfect match with the first half of the Olivet Discourse. And then when this trigger event takes place, the abomination of desolation, you see the other events that will take place, one of which in which Satan is cast down to the earth. And when that happens, listen to verse 14. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. This has nothing to do with America, by the way. We're not the great eagle here. People go wacko with some of their interpretations. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now, here's a chart that might be helpful to refresh your memory. If you remember, John mentions here a time, which we learned from the book of Daniel was one unit. It refers to one year. Then he mentions times, plural. In Hebrew, there's a singular, there's a dual, and then there's three or more. Why do we have in most children's Bible two holy angels next to the flaming sword? Because it's a dual when he speaks of the cherubim. Here he speaks of two units or two years, and then half a time for a total of three and a half years. Daniel 9, Daniel 12, Daniel 7 mentions that. 42 months are mentioned, again, three and a half years. 
1260 days, again, three and a half years. And so Israel is fleeing from the dragon here called the serpent, and two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. What does that mean? Well, again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. He assumes we have some knowledge of the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, the wings of an eagle are used to describe God's help, God's protection, and God's care. For instance, in that great chapter, Isaiah 40, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. In the Exodus, God used this same description when he said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In describing for his care for them for 40 years in the wilderness, God said, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them, he carried them on his pinions. And so when God says here, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, he's describing his supernatural care for the Jewish people during this time. You say, how will it come? Well, you know, God has could do it a lot of creative ways. He cared for Elijah at that brook called Cherith, Some of you saw that very brook that Elijah was at when we were there at the Mount of Carmel recently. And it was there, of course, that God brought a fish to him every day. You know, I I know of a brother, I heard him on staff with Campus Crusade, who was in Vietnam, how God supernaturally, kind of like Elijah, brought a fish right to where he was every day when he was hiding for his life, and he'd just grab it with his hands. God is so great. God is so powerful how he can do that. Maybe he will care for them through Gentiles. You know, in the Mount of Olivet there in Matthew 25, Jesus describes how certain nations, when the nations, meaning not America and Germany and France, but, but the ethnoi, the, the, the ethnicities of this world will be judged. They will be judged in how they treated Israel for those who cared for them in, in prison, who clothed them when they were naked, who fed them during this uh, seven-year period when they had nothing to eat will demonstrate that they have genuine faith and they'll be welcomed into heaven. And those who persecuted them will demonstrate that they were unbe- in unbelief and will be forever put away. God may care for them through Gentiles. Maybe God will care for them like he cared for the people there in the wilderness, whether it's those who care for the least of these, my brethren, by providing physically. There's another dimension by which God supernaturally cares for them, and that he tells them to go into the wilderness. Now, follow this. Now, remember when we're in the book of Daniel, the 11th chapter, the chapter divided into two halves, kind of like Isaiah 14, kind of like Ezekiel 28, where the first half describes a natural king who is alive, and the second half a coming king. The first half, as Isaiah 14 describes a a natural king, the second half describes Satan behind the king and so forth. Well, in the second half of Daniel 11, if you remember, we have one of the most detailed discussions on the Antichrist in all the Bible. In fact, you will learn more about the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 11 than any other chapter in the Bible. And there it says in 1141, he, the Antichrist, will also enter the beautiful land, that's Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Who? Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. 
So Daniel reveals that three countries that God defines not simply by borders, but by ethnicities, are going to be delivered. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Here's a map. Where do they fall? Modern-day Jordan. Why is the Antichrist not going to wreak havoc on these three nations? Why is Satan not going to attack them? Because these three nations have hated Israel, have persecuted issue Israel, and maybe that will be Satan's way of giving him a pat on the back and saying, good work, boys. And so it's in these three nations that the Jews are going to flee to. Here's a picture of a place called Petra. Some of you have been there with me. Um, we're told as Jesus said in the midpoint of the tribulation, you who are in Judea, not Dallas or New York or Washington, but you who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And so there are three nations that will be protected. And amongst this area, there's a place called Petra. Many Christian pastors and scholars think that this is where the Jews will go. I don't know for sure. I think it's a viable option. The only way to get into Petra is you can't go in there in a car, in a truck. You have to go on foot or a donkey. And when you walk into there, there's a whole city, so to speak. You say, well, how is that going to protect them? Well, why can't they just fly over it in a helicopter or drop a bomb on them from an airplane? We're going to see later why in the Revelation. Things are going to drastically change in the electrical realm as we know it. But we're told here in verse 15, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away by the flood. Let's say they're in Petra for the sake of argument. The devil is going to somehow harness a river of water, and that place is common for a number of large underground rivers and lakes. And somehow he's going to harness water and pour it into this place where the Jews are hiding, probably no doubt to try to drown the Jews. But on two occasions in the Old Testament, God opened up the earth in the book of Numbers, chapter 16, Exodus 15, and God's going to do the same. But the earth, verse 16, helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. He couldn't beat the Jew. So what does he do? He went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Once again, this woman cannot be Mary because we're told here the dragon is enraged. He goes off to make war with her children. Mary's children have been dead for 2,000 years. And of course, if you believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary as the Roman Catholics have, you have even greater problems because they identify the woman as Mary. So you have to even go into deeper allegorization as to what this all means. How do I know Mary had children? Matthew tells us, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not Mary? Is this not his mother called Mary and his brothers named James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and his sisters. Jesus had at least seven kids in the family. He's the oldest. He comes first through Mary's womb, through a virgin conception and a virgin birth. And then they have natural relations and other children. Can't be replacement theology. I mean, you just have to manipulate and twist and ruin the Word of God. I was speaking to someone recently. We were looking at the prophecy in Ezekiel. 
We were down there at the Dead Sea. I mean, you can float on the Dead Sea. It is the lowest place in the face of the earth, and the far end of it is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the lowest place in the face of the earth. It's the saltiest body of water on the face of the earth. There's not even the smallest, tiniest living organism in that place. But God says a day is coming when it will be filled with fresh water and people will dry their fishing nets next to it. Has that ever happened? No. Is it going to happen? Yes. Replacement theology denies prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and they manipulate the Word of God. Listen, this is going to happen. And the rest of the children, notice how they're described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The serpent, the devil, hates the Jewish people. He is the greatest anti-Semite who has ever lived and expressed hatred. He motivated Pharaoh to put them in bondage. He tried to destroy them at the Red Sea. He tried to eliminate Israel's true king by motivating Saul to kill David. He urged the enemies of Israel to stop the rebuilding of the wall so that they could not protect themselves. He later provokes King Herod to uh, in, in, uh, to, kill, to try to kill the Son of God. He even tried to tempt Jesus to kill himself in the pinnacle of the temple. He stirred up the people in Jesus' hometown and brought them to that precipice called the Mount of Precipice, a place you can visit today, the only place in Nazareth where they wanted to be throw him off that cliff. He had Hitler who slaughtered six million of them, person after person after person. He hates the Jew, and he hates you. So how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications in the form of questions. Number one, ask yourself, do I recognize that I am in a real war? Now, time is going to grow desperate for Satan. He's going to recognize his time is short. And so like a cornered beast, he's going to pray on Israel. But I want to tell you, he's praying on God's people today. He not only hates the Jewish people, he hates the body of Christ. And sooner or later, if you grow in Christ, you will discover that the Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. Paul said, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of the darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are three enemies that wage war against the believer. And if you've been through the discovery class online, it's back to basics at searchthescriptures.org. There is three enemies, the world, meaning the society around us that Satan is crafting in a growing way for evil. The world is not going to get better in the end. Don't be deluded by thinking that. It's going to get worse in the end, the Bible says. We're witnessing it. There's the world, there's the flesh. That's your fallen sinful nature within that is opposed to God. And there's the devil himself. But God has given us victory, and we explain how to realize that victory in the discovery class. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so we need to recognize this morning that it's not by accident that Satan is compared to a lion and a dragon because he wants to wreck people's lives and destroy God's people. So ask yourself this morning, secondly, am I using the weapons of my warfare? 
Am I using the weapons of my warfare? We underscored three today, the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and their supreme love for Jesus. How are you doing in your personal battle with Satan? How are you doing with the one who accuses you before the Father day and night? Are you relying daily upon the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from sin? Are you sharing the Word of God, the the, the Word of the testimony that the Spirit of God might have total freedom in your life? And have you placed all that you have, loving Jesus more than your own life, placing it all on the altar, Jesus first and only Him? Now, this is a conflict that is in the future here in Revelation 12, but it's the same conflict that God's people have today. And so God wants to remind us that there's a bloodthirsty, unmerciful, fallen angel who wants to wreck you. And you start living for Jesus, and you'll discover just how real the battle is. Finally, ask yourself, have I been transferred from Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom? Look, there's only two kingdoms. If you've moved past the age of accountability, whatever that age was for you, you're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. There's only two groups of people, the sheep and the goats. There's only two roads, the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. There's only two groups of people, those who've been born once, those who've been born twice. There's the saved and the lost. You say, well, pastor, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any conflict in my life with the devil. It means either A, you're out of fellowship with God and you're not really living for Jesus, or more likely... You're just a tear. You look like a Christian. You talk like a Christian. But you're a part of that great multitude whom in the end Jesus will say, I never knew you depart from me. Because I tell you, if you're asleep in the arms of the evil one, he's got you right where he wants you, and I promise you he will not bother you. You don't want to be here on earth when this time unfolds. And you don't want to be with the evil one in hell when the wrath of God on the earth turns into the eternal wrath in hell. Today, there's still opportunity to call upon Jesus. For whoever will call on his name will be saved. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning that we are so privileged today to open your word. We have a completed copy of the scripture that for the majority of the history of your church, your people have never had. The average Christian never had access to a full copy of all 66 books, but we do. We thank you for that. May we not take it for granted. May we heed the message that we've been studying today. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who really is uncertain whether heaven is really their home. They'd like to go, but they don't know it. Your word says because they've not yet believed or trusted Jesus alone to save them, that what he did was sufficient. Thank you that he died for all of our sin, that whoever 
will call on his name and trust in his death and resurrection can be saved today. Thank you that when we willfully choose him, we are born from above. We are made to be a new creature in Christ that the old has passed away and all things have become new. But we recognize, Father, that with that comes a battle, but a battle that your son has promised victory as we look to him, the blood of the lamb, as we look to our unashamed confession of him as Lord, as we faithfully share the commission you've entrusted to us. And when we, as your people, love Jesus more than life itself, help someone who's never received that life today to say, Jesus, save me. And help the rest of us to say, Lord Jesus, may we live for thee. We ask it in your holy name. Amen.